question as we turn our attention to David and Goliath is the question, what do you fear? Or maybe what scares you? I've heard even just in the last couple of days hanging out with people from Charlotte Chapel that heights scare people, snakes scare people, spiders. If you're Adam McNinch, badgers scare you apparently. He says they're the number one carnivore in the United Kingdom. So, But I think as you think about what you fear or what you're scared of, can you recall times of fear when like fear really gripped you? I remember a time when I was in middle school and I was at this minor league baseball game that was near where we lived. And, and as we're sitting in the stands, uh, there were these older guys who happened to have been drinking too much. And so they were drunk and they... They started cursing and cussing at the people around because we wouldn't get up and do what, what y'all call here the Mexican wave. You know what this is where you get up and down like this. And so they were yelling and cussing at us for not standing up and doing that. Now, you can probably yell at me about a lot of things, but not doing the Mexican wave doesn't seem to be one of the things you should yell at me about. But because we live in a fallen world, we know that fear is a part of everyday life. I mean, we see a spider, we get scared, but there are even greater enemies we face than things like snakes and spiders. We face things, and we know that even more clearly. And where we live now in 2020, we know that there are things like diseases, and there are things like disasters, and there is certainly death. We live in a world that has real enemies. We have some enemies that are internal, enemies of sin, so things like our sinful appetites, things like anger and, and lust and greed and, and often in, in our culture's obsession with the approval of others. And we also have external enemies, enemies that threaten all of us, things like storms and earthquakes and cancer and viruses and on and on and on we could go. And even more than that, behind it all, we face a serpent that the scriptures tells us would like to sift us like wheat. And yet, in a world of foes and in a world of fear, where do we turn for true courage? And maybe even more important question, where, do we, where should our faith be directed so that our faith is abiding, that our faith is lasting, and our faith is persevering? And I think the text that we're going to look at tonight helps us see where true and lasting courage is, is found. True and lasting courage is shaped by faith, by a confidence in God who keeps his promises to sustain and to deliver his people, yes, often in this life but ultimately in the life to come. My main idea this tonight is simply this. God provides a courageous king who prevails for his people by faith. God provides a courageous king who prevails for his people by faith. Now here's the context of what's taking place in 1 Samuel. And, and, and Liam uh, alluded to this just a minute ago, but it's the days after the judges and Israel now has the king that they want. They have King Saul who is described actually in 1 Samuel 9 as one who is strong and one who is tall. He's a, he's a head taller than every other Israelite. And yet in 1 Samuel 15, he has disregarded God, he has disobeyed God, so Samuel has informed him that God is now rejecting him and he is giving his kingdom to another who says, who, who is better than you. And then in chapter 16, we are for the first time in the scriptures introduced to a man, well really a boy named David, who is an unlikely king, who comes from humble roots, he comes from Bethlehem. He is unlikely because he is still young. There's this description of him in chapter 16 that says he has fine appearance and handsome features. And what that's meant to invoke in us is the idea that he is a cute kid. That's why the writer is saying this. He's a, he's a cute kid. He is not a warrior king by any means. However, 1 Samuel 16 is very clear. 
God does not look on the appearance of a man. God looks at the heart. And so he has Samuel anoint him as king, and that is pivotal even to the story that we're going to look at tonight. It means the Spirit has come upon him, has now empowered him for service, and the Spirit upon him, anointed so that the Spirit comes upon, upon him, indicates that he is actually the true king. Saul is no longer the true king. Now the text, I think, for us, chapter 17, breaks down into basically three sections, and I'll just... I'll just kind of identify them like this. First, we see the fear of Israel in the face of God's enemies. This is verse 1 through 16 in chapter 17. We see the fear of Israel in the face of God's enemy. Look in chapter 17 at verse 1 if you have your copy of God's word. And here's what it says. And I will have to skip a few verses just for time tonight. But we will make our way through this chapter. And here's what it says in verse 17, or in chapter 17 in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. And then look at verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. If you don't know the scriptures, the Philistines are the Israel's arch enemies. Enemy. They despise and they hate Israel. And they despise and they hate Israel's God. And so they have come to, to wipe them out. They have come, it's, we'll see in the text, they have come actually to talk, hopefully make the Israelites their slaves. Now if you know the Old Testament... As you read this, the fact that the Philistines are still in the land, you should hear the, the Jaws music playing. Israel is supposed to drive out these idolatrous and wicked Philistines. They're supposed to move them out of the land. They've been promised that they would have victory over them by God. But because of their disobedience, they had not driven them out. And because of their disobedience, it now may cost them their very lives. The whole narrative will show us Israel does not trust in the promises of God. In contrast to this unlikely boy king who does trust in the promises of God. And now in the text we're introduced to the giant. And we will see in verses 4 through 7 the description of him. And then we will see the things he is taunting Israel with in verses 8 through 10. Verse 4 says this. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was, his height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of, of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and on a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron pointed, a point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Here is this strong man, this giant named Goliath. And try as best you can to, to put yourself in the scene. Try to think as a soldier of Israel. You are there. You're on one hill. The Philistines are on another. And out steps this behemoth of a man. He is, he is swaggering out. He begins to taunt you. Think, just think the size of Tyson Fury. Just think even bigger than that. How big is he? Well, most scholars would tell us he's something like 9 feet 9 inches tall. His armor alone weighs 125 pounds, and I don't know what that would be in kilograms. I'm sorry, I should have done that first. And just think about that. He's this huge man. His spear alone weighs 15 pounds. He's, he's massive. He's strong. He's slightly taller and stronger than Paul Rees. I don't know why they're laughing. The sheer sight of him, the enormity of this man terrifies Israel. It's interesting. Goliath's armor is given three verses to look at. It's given so much attention, and part of that is to show just how large he is, but there's actually a larger theological purpose going on. In verse 5, we are told that he, wear, he wears scale armor. 
The author wants the readers to recall Genesis chapter 3. He wants us to know that Goliath looked like a massive snake. He looked like a massive serpent. And that once again, among God's people, in God's land, just as in Eden, there is a serpent who has come in as a threat to them. And listen to what he says in verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. We come in the text to this, this idea of this of representative combat or this champion stepping out from his side to fight in a winner-take-all challenge. You might say one steps out in the place of the many. Some people call this guy, this champion, a go-between man who would step out so that his people were behind him so that he could protect the enemy from them. And so you have these two stepping out, these go-between men who will fight on behalf of their people. And whoever wins, whoever kills the other champion, his people would then partake in the spoils of victory, the rewards of victory, even if they don't lift a finger themselves. And yet we see the Israelites' response to this man's taunts. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, I think this is a sad verse. The Israelites are the people of God. They've, they've already seen God's strength to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of Pharaoh. They have all the promises of God, and yet they are cowering like defeated wimps. Worst of all, King Saul, who has described himself as a giant of a man, is also terrified. They have disregarded that God is on their side. They have disregarded that he has promised them victory over the Philistines. There is no faith. There is no courage. And in case you didn't notice, there's never even a mention of prayer in the text in the face of this obstacle. Dominating this text is not just the size of Goliath. Dominating this text is the size of unbelief among God's people. Now skip down to verse 16. Here's what it says. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 40 days is significant. This, this wicked man takes his stand against the armies of God. This recalls for us the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience and their lack of faith. They were promised this land, but because of their lack of faith they didn't take it. And so they were punished to wander in the wilderness. And do you remember why the Israelites didn't take the land? Well, they have 12 spies that go into the land, and 10 of the 12 come back and say, we cannot take this land because they are giants, and we are grasshoppers in their sight. They are now back in the wilderness again, you might say. They fail to believe the promises of God. More than that, and I think most importantly, they fail to believe that God is actually with them. Which leads us to the second part of the text in verses 17 through 37. In contrast, we see the faith of David in the face of God's enemies. Here's what it says in verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance of them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Jesse tells his son David, take some, some bread and some cheese down to your brothers in the army. This is a good father sending along food, but he also wants to get a report of how they are doing. 
And that takes us, I think, if you'll skip down to verse 23, I think it takes us to the, to the pivotal verse in what is taking place in this whole narrative. Verse 23 is the turning point. Here's what it says. As he was talking with them, as David is talking to his brothers, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Once again, here comes the giant. He is taunting them. He is mocking them. He is challenging, challenging them, but it's very different this time because this time God's champion hears him. The anointed one of God who has the spirit is not going to let this man taunt the armies of God. Verse 24 says this, whenever the Israelites saw this man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his, his family from taxes in Israel. That sounds like a good deal. The men of Israel, as they see this giant, they flee from him. They are terrified of him. And because it is such a desperate situation, Saul basically offers the world to whoever will take down this man. Whoever takes down the giant gets lots of money, they get the princess, they get no more taxes. And you would think this is such a massive reward that somebody would take the chance. And yet, as one scholar said, what good is a reward if you're six feet under? Yet again, David is much different. As David hears Goliath defy and belittle God, David is not standing for it. I mean, listen to what he says in verse 26. And I love this. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David understands that this challenge against Israel is not just against Israel, but it's against Israel's God. David is essentially saying in verse 26, have you lost your mind? Who do you think you are to defy God? David has rightly, rightly sized up the situation. He understands this is not just a physical battle, but it is a spiritual battle. It is a theological battle because the glory and the honor and the reputation of Israel's God is at stake. And by way of application tonight, I just want, to, want you to let that sink in for a minute. If you're in this room and you're a teenager, in this room and you're a young adult, in this room and you're an adult, you're maybe even more a more seasoned adult, David is more concerned with the reputation of God than he is his own safety. David is more concerned with the reputation of God than he is his own comfort. I just can't help but think, what is that going to mean for our lives? We're going to be zealous for the glory of God. We're going to care more about his fame and his name and his glory than we are our own comforts and our, and our own safety. Now skip down to verse 31. And here's what it says. What David said was, was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul calls for David after hearing what he has said. And isn't this a sad scene? If you really take calculation of what's going on, if you take a second to contemplate what is going on, this youthful boy is saying to the tall and muscular king, don't lose heart. I will go out and fight for Israel. He is saying to the king who should be representing his people, who should be taking care of his people, who should be shepherding his people, he's saying, I've got this. I will take care of this. Now Saul, Saul does respond to him in a, 
I think at least at first in a dismissive way. He says, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and to fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul initially rejects David's offer. And you can imagine kind of how this went. David, it's cute you think you can do this. And I mean, thanks for bringing the bread and the cheese, but you can't be serious. This man's a warrior and you are but a boy. But David won't even let the king get in his way. David presses him, verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. David is confident because he has defeated wild animals in the past to protect his sheep. Now he, as the anointed king, will protect his new flock. He will protect Israel. David is confident and courageous because of his faith in the fact that God will defend his own honor. He believes God will make Goliath's fate the same fate as the lions and the bears who tried to take away his sheep before. In David's mind, as, David, as Goliath began to disgrace and blaspheme God, as he began to mock the one who had actually created him, in some ways he became like those wild animals who threatened the flock. And now David, in some sense a new Adam, will take dominion over the wild animal who threatens his people who threatens the people of Israel. David is confident because he serves a God who has zeal for his own name, who is much larger than any giant. Which leads us to our final section in the text. And we see in verses 38 through 54, the victory of David over God's enemies on behalf of God's people. The victory of David over God's enemies on behalf of God's people. Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch, the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. David doesn't want the armor. This is a, a signal to us that David does not intend to go to battle with earthly weapons. No, he intends to go to battle with weapons of faith. He goes out like a shepherd to protect his sheep. He goes out like a shepherd to tame the wild animal by taking five stones. Most scholars say these stones would have been about the size of a tennis ball. One Old Testament scholar commenting on these verses simply said this, Goliath had committed blasphemy, which was a capital crime, and now David was going out into the field to stone him to death. And now you feel the story build to this this moment, right? This is, this is the one-on-one -on -one duel. This is mano-a-mano -mano combat. I mean, think Ali Frazier, think Lewis Tyson, think Fury Wilder, the American got taken down. Think Rocky versus the Russian, Rocky IV. And here now the champion's fate will be the fate of his people. And one of those clear showdowns of the righteous versus the wicked. And yet again, this is not simply about a physical match this is about theology one dressed like a snake who defies god who wields death against god's people just like that serpent in eden 
And just as Adam was commanded to have dominion over or to rule over the beast of the field, David now steps out in the field to exercise dominion over the beast. And the fight begins. Verse 41, meanwhile the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. Goliath moves forward, his shield bearer is in front of him, who turns out to be completely useless if you know the end of the story. Goliath believes David is unfit for the challenge. Again, you you will see he thinks that David is a cute kid. And so he starts to trash talk him. He ultimately curses David by his false gods. Here's what he says, verse 42. He looked David over and saw that he was little little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Goliath basically tells David, not only am I going to kill you, but when I kill you, I'm going to disgrace you. And I'm going to do so by my gods. David responds to the taunts. In verse 45, he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David is not intimidated by his size or his weapons. He reminds Goliath, you have mocked God, and that will not go on forever. David's response draws stark contrast to to their strategies, right? Goliath relies on his might. He relies on his size. He relies on his weapons. David relies on the Lord of hosts. Again, this looks like a mismatch. But David knows all power in heaven and on earth belongs to God. All David sees in front of him is a blasphemous mortal man. And all he sees behind him is an all-powerful immortal God. In this text, the real underdog is not David. In fact, David is so confident, he calls his shot. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that this is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David is saying what's about to happen is going to be done so that the world knows that God is mighty to save, even in the face of what seem to be insurmountable odds, and save not in the way humanity thinks he would save. No, in fact, he's going to do it in such a striking way that it's going to make be clear God alone did this. At every turn, the author has gone to great lengths to show us the, the power and the might and in, in some ways the invulnerability of Goliath and to show us the weakness of David. And so what happens? Well, for all of his bluster, it is a first-round knockout. And the Philistine moved closer to attack him. David ran quickly. Remember the Israelites were running away from him. Instead, David runs quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he takes out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on the grace, fell on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David doesn't run from him. He runs toward him. And with tremendous force, he launches that tennis size. Uh, tennis ball sized stone and he hits him in the head and he comes down crashing to the ground and yet it's not over we still have one more verse to read because it says this David ran and stood over him he took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from its sheath after he killed him he cut off his head with the sword David piles on in victory Goliath is severely wounded and David takes the giant's own weapon from him and he uses it against him and now the man dressed like a snake dies from a head wound 
The boy has knocked down the largest man in history. And just as God does not judge man by appearance, we must not judge our enemies by appearance. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are unseen powers. Our enemies are our own internal sin. But we don't judge our enemies by their size or their strength or their cunning. David's crushing of the enemy's head leads to a rout of the Philistine army. You actually see that in verse 51 as well. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. David's people now share in the victory of what has taken place even though they had done nothing to earn it themselves. And that should sound familiar. But there's a problem in this text. If you begin to read the rest of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel and on throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's simply this. Though there are glimpses of Genesis 3.15 of someone who would come and solve our sin problem, solve the problem of death, the fulfillment would have to wait. The problem is because David himself is also a sinner, so his victories are only temporary. And so we're left waiting for a greater son of David who would establish an eternal kingdom. We're, we're left waiting for a greater son of David who would bring ultimate victory, who would bring ultimate deliverance from our greatest enemies. And yet all of David's sons sin and they fail and they die. And the hope of one who would turn back sin and turn back death lies dead in Jerusalem tombs. Until we once again return to Bethlehem and we once again return to the birth of another unlikely warrior king who will ultimately save his people. Because you see, brothers and sisters, there will be another in this line who will be baptized. And when he is baptized, he will be anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit will descend upon him. And what he does immediately as the Spirit comes upon him is he immediately goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to make war with the serpent from Eden, to tame the serpent from Eden, to take on the blasphemous enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, there will be another king who by faith would trust the promises of God, that God would deliver him from the hand of the enemy, that God would deliver him from death. The one who would loud cries, cried to the one who was able to save him from death. And there's another champion whose fate will be the fate of his people, who, who will have victory and give the rewards over to his people. The one who will plunder the strong man's house and take his goods. And the question is, how does he provide this ultimate victory? How does he accomplish salvation and deliverance for God's people? Well, he became our go-between. He became the one in the place of the many. We are on the sidelines. We need another son of Jesse to stand between us and sin, to stand between us and death, to stand between us and the serpent. Satan himself, and at the cross, he defeats our greatest enemy, vanquishes our foe by turning his own weapons against him, by becoming in that moment on the cross, by becoming our sin bearer, taking our shame and taking our guilt and taking the penalty that was due our sins, taking the judgment of God upon himself. As hour after hour as he is on the cross, the judgment of God touches down upon him. And what he does in that moment is he takes away the, the enemy's weapons of accusation. He takes away the enemy's weapon of death for sin. And he delivers a fatal head wound to the serpent. Because now the accuser of our brothers who accuses them night and day has been thrown down. Because brothers and sisters at the cross, I'm reminded of this great, great quote by the Baptist preacher R.G. Lee. Who simply said this, at the cross Christ became for, 
for man all that God must judge so that we by faith in him might become all that God cannot judge. Here is our go-between man, the promised one of Genesis chapter 3, the, the seed of Jesse, the rightful heir to the throne of David, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, the unlikely champion who is ours. The even greater shepherd of the sheep, because he did not just risk his life for his people, he laid it down. And yet, brothers and sisters, we know his sacrifice on our behalf is good. We know that his sacrifice on our behalf has been accepted because like David, he needed a tomb, but unlike David, he needed his for three days only. If you're in this room and you're not a Christ follower, whether you know it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, you have enemies. Enemies without, enemies within. And I have a suspicion that deep down you know you are a sinner who is not right with God. You know that left to yourself you will not be delivered from the judgment to come. And we do so many things to try to ease our conscience. We turn to things like alcohol and sex and drugs and money. I want you to know that you will not find rest. You will not find forever rest until you find your rest in God. The greatest news in all the world is that God has provided a way. God has provided a go-between man for your salvation. On the last day, there will be two possible ways you face God in judgment. You will either face God in judgment with a champion named Jesus, or you will face him on your own, and you will be swept away. I want to plead with you tonight, consider Jesus because he is, he is worth it. If you have questions about what that means, please find one of us after the service. We'd love to talk with you about what it looks, to, looks like to turn to him in repentance and faith. And believers, how do we apply this text to our lives? Well, it's simple. If we are in Christ, it means we now, like David, have the spirit. We now are the Israelites who, because our champion is one on our behalf, we are advancing. Which means we should have courageous faith rather than fear. Not because we are big, but because we serve an all-powerful God. God has solved our biggest problem and now given us the spirit so that we can face our lesser enemies, ones of sin and unseen powers. Secondly, I think it means we must have zeal for God marked by humility. Humility because we did not accomplish victory on our own, but zeal because he is worthy of all that we can give him. He has redeemed us at great cost. He has redeemed us at the cost of his own blood. How in the world can we be cold towards him if that is true? David is willing to risk his comfort, even his life, for the glory of God. The question is, what will that look like for us? And finally, this text should remind us that there is forgiveness for our failures because the victory is somebody else's, not ours. Just know that for every time I have doubted, for every time I have failed to be courageous with my faith, for every time I have cowered, when I was supposed to be speaking about Jesus, Jesus bore in his bodily body the penalty of that sin. That sort of love and affection towards us should humble us and it should make us a passionate people for his glory. You know, all those years ago when I was at that minor league baseball game and those guys were cussing at us, they were drunk and screaming at us because we wouldn't do the wave, I was initially scared. And then I remember that sitting right next to me was my uncle, we called him Big Kevin, who was a a uh, 260-pound man who bench-pressed 500 pounds. And so as soon as he stood up, they sat down. Oh, brothers and sisters, 
in a much greater way. We go forward with courageous faith no matter what we face in this life because we have already been told by Paul we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Viruses and death and even sin will not be the last word for us because our future is connected to our go-between man. Brothers and sisters, our go-between man is doing just fine. In fact, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we know that his future is now our future. After all, Luther reminds us we are not underdogs because the right man is on our side. In fact, the Lord of hosts is with us. Let's pray.